Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Richard Epstein, the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. He's also the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Richard, welcome back to EconTalk. It's always nice to be here. Our topic today is the burgeoning research on happiness and its importance in economics. Give us some background on how that literature has uh, has evolved, how it's conducted. Sure. I mean, one of the interesting things about the standard models of economics is they become tractable in one way because what they do is they assume that people have perfectly well-ordered utility functions. They're self-interested. They care about themselves. Generally speaking, the more they have, the better they are. They're by and large indifferent to the way in which other people feel. And so the social progress under this model comes from two agencies. One, since you know that people are selfish, um, if they trade with somebody else, they're going to be selfish. The other guy's going to be selfish, and that will generate mutual gains between the parties so that you have some kind of a local improvement. On the other hand, um, if they're selfish and they start to take from somebody else, we're pretty confident they're going to gain more than they've lost. So what we do is we have a prohibition against the use of force against neighbors. And I summarize the sort of neoclassical position in a forward situation, cooperation, yes, aggression, no. Not the entire moral universe, but it covers enough of it to be at least attractive as a first approximation. Now, what happens with the happiness literature is a lot of it is designed in its ulterior fashion to undercut the standard form of market calculus, which is based upon this narrow self-interest model. And so what they have to do is to find ways in which um, the assumptions of self-interest don't play out as the model suggests. And there are two lines of attack that are generally brought on this. One of them is the kind of behavioral economics line, which says, nope, these people aren't nearly as rational as they think they are in the way in which they compute their sums. There are all sorts of background errors, heuristics, biases of one sort or another. And so when you start to talk about cooperation being a joint gain, you have to recognize it's cooperation against the backdrop of systematic uncertainty and ignorance, and so your assumptions are not going to be particularly good. Uh, The behavioralists, as best I can tell, have no particular brief for the use of force against other individuals, so the negative side of the utilitarian calculus remains pretty much intact. The happiness literature is designed to deal with, I think, other issues. One of them is as follows. If you follow the logic of the neoclassical model, what it starts to tell you is that every voluntary transaction will yield mutual gains, but it doesn't tell you that the mutual gains will be of equal proportion. Some person may benefit a little from a transaction. Some may benefit a great deal. Some people may have the luck to get into lots of transactions. Others may find very little at all. Some people will be born with very large natural endowments, other people with less. And so the standard model essentially comes up with high dispersions in income off of generally a higher median. And a lot of the people in this world are, in fact, upset about this, and they think that you really have to worry in understanding happiness, not only about your absolute state in the world, but about your relative position to other people. And to some extent, this is perfectly benign, because if you're worried about your relative status, and the only thing you do in order to improve your status is to engage in successful market transactions, 
you're going to raise your relative rank only by increasing the welfare of the rest of the world. But if, in fact, you have this sense that your relative preferences really matter and you can't raise yourself, well, then you're prepared to knock somebody else down, at which point we have a suicide contest. Everybody's trying to figure out how to subvert their neighbor. So there's this famous Russian proverb, I am told, which says, my neighbor has a cow, I do not. Uh, The genie gives him one wish. What's the wish? It's not for me to have two cows. It's for him to have none. And so there's a part of the happiness literature which is really designed to make everybody mutually miserable. And the way in which it phrases itself is to say that in general, if you look at the empirical studies, they show you that there's only a weak correlation between happiness on the one hand and wealth on the other hand. And the implication, I think, that they tried to draw from this is it's okay to take away the wealth because it doesn't make the people who had it less happy. Uh, The unspoken premise, of course, is it makes the people who don't have it happier which, of course, is doubtful underneath, the own, underneath that basic theory. But nonetheless, I think it's pretty clear that both of these fields are designed to explain why it is that government action in the field of redistribution and guaranteed minimum rights is useful and to undercut the old four-version model, four-word proposition that cooperation, yes, aggression, no, redistribution, last, by which I mean is if you're going to do that in a state, first figure out how you expand the pie, and then if you find that there's some shortfalls, figure out what forms of minimum support you can use to overcome those defects, as opposed to starting from the other end, in which the egalitarian norm is first and the production questions come last. It may just seem to be a matter of order, but it seems to me that it's much more important that uh, where you start in many cases will dictate where you end. And the thing that I've always feared about the happiness literature and the behavioral literature is it will produce perfect equality, everybody being very poor. And that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly desirable social state, as opposed to a world in which people are prosperous and some are more prosperous than others. And this literature is also, I think, used uh, by environmentalists as a pure anti-growth argument. So the, as you say, in the neoclassical model, we teach our students more is preferred to less. So if you have the same amount of everything but more of something, that's, that's an improvement in your well-being. And the happiness literature suggests that, well... After a certain point, yes, in the beginning, if you're very poor, you're near subsistence, uh, increases in in material well-being do lead to greater levels of satisfaction and happiness. But after a while, it's just a fool's game. All we're doing is degrading the environment. We're not producing any well-being, and um, we we should just go back to a simpler life. Yes. Now, I mean, look, the point is that there are neoclassical answers, of course, to the environmental question, I think, which one has to deal with. So... To take some of the common proposals, what we're told is we really want gasoline to be at $4 a barrel because, or $4 a gallon because that way people will drive less and the environment will be saved. But what you're doing is you're giving up a lot of consumption benefit in order to control the externality. And the right way to do this, in my judgment, is to have a tax on pollution, which roughly measures the environmental damage, impose that consistently, and then let the price vary with market conditions because if it does then you'll be able to pick up greater consumption under those circumstances where the opportunity cost is less. It would be crazy for us to consume the same amount of oil when it's at $70 a barrel as it was when it was $147. And the idea that you want to impose a tax to restrict the consumption perfectly is a way of saying that we really like making people miserable when there are, in fact, much more precise ways to deal with the externalities that we have to worry about, namely pollution or, in some cases, congestion. But the happiness proponent the, or the environmentalists, I'm not sure which, um, some people would say, 
that you know, but all that extra consumption is just uh, that's a that's just an illusion. You don't get any happier. You're just driving around more in your car. You're just driving a. Uh, mindlessly around that's not that's not what produces happiness you should stay closer to the hearth and spend more time with your family well i mean you know we do have the the problem with this theory in many cases of course is that we have the theory of revealed preferences at the same time we are constantly told that wealth is a matter of complete indifference for the happiness we see people in this world moving very hard to get raises to make advancements to take sacrifices in the short run to get long-term behaviors and so part of what the happiness literature seems to suggest is that everybody operates under some deep delusions as to what their happiness and these guys who are running the survey data will know better what's best for us and uh, let me explain to you what i think is the sort of the methodological fallacy in these circumstances um, that is the data seems to suggest and i think suggests rightly for the most part um, that when you have higher incomes, you don't necessarily have a whole lot higher levels of happiness, particularly at the high levels. But what's going on in these cases is quite simply this. You want somebody to be working 90 hours a week, to be at the beck and call of some large corporations, to pick up on a dime and to travel off to some foreign land to control a mega deal. And what you're going to say to this guy is, we're just going to pay the same as we pay everybody else. There's going to be nobody else in the world who's going to take that job. Why would you want to make yourself miserable for no money? So what happens is you tend to find people saying, look, I'll make the following pact with you. I'll be miserable for five years so long as you make me rich. And that way, in effect, what you understand is that the extra compensation is, in fact, compensation for being unhappy. So when people report that they're not happy, what they're doing is they're giving an accurate reflection of what's going on, which is namely they've sacrificed some happiness in order to get greater wealth. What's interesting, of course, about most people is if they do this thing, they don't want to be unhappy forever. So what they do is they engage in a strategy in which they accumulate wealth in the early years, work very hard at it, and then they take a kind of job which pays much less but gives them much greater amounts of social rewards. And to sort of interfere in this market and to tell people, no, what you have to do is to have a constant ratio between happiness and and income at all stages of your life strikes me as a restriction on freedom, which is not going to produce any particular advancement in wealth, because the following proposition is also true. Uh, you can't put together these mega deals and international multi-party mergers unless you get people on an airplane on the drop of a hat. And so if we want to say that nobody should be doing these kinds of things because everybody will be miserable, all the gains from trade that come from some of these international transactions we left to go by the wayside, and that doesn't strike me as being particularly smart either. So my own attitude about this is that uh, we should adopt an information strategy rather than a coercion strategy. Publish anything you want with respect to happiness. And then when people sort of see the information, they could kind of project it into their own lives and see whether they really want to take one of these horrific jobs or whether or not they'd rather spend their time um, doing less work and having more time with their family. And, you know, this happens all the time. People work in law firms. They earn themselves a quarter of a million dollars a year, three years out from law school, and two years later they're working in some kind of a public interest operation for a third the money because they enjoy the work more. I mean, people understand these kinds of trade-offs, and I don't think that they have to be beaten over the head by a literature to tell them exactly the way it is that they ought to be hit. Yeah, I like to point out that uh, I, I tell my students, don't take the job that pays the most money necessarily. You might That might be your best opportunity. It usually isn't. Uh, but don't take the job that pays the least either, uh, thinking you're, you're doing the most noble thing. There is a trade-off between what you accomplish in the world with your skills and how much time you leave for, for other things, whether they're I, personal I, or social. 
I mean, I think of myself as an academic. I've never been anything other than an academic. You know, by the time I was 25 years old, I realized that whatever the differences in starting salaries, which were minimal between teaching on the one hand and practicing law at a major firm on the other, five years down the road, I would start to feel the difference. You know, I can't complain at all about my lot in life, and I don't want to be thought to do so, but I essentially wake up every morning, sometimes I look at the stars and say my prayers and realize that if I'd gone to work for one of these high-powered law firms, I would be earning five times what I do today. And you know what? That's fine. Uh, and I still have never had the slightest inclination in order to shift. You might be happier, but you might be a lot less happy. Obviously. I think I would be less happy. Let's put it this way. It's too late for me to change 41 <laughs> years into the business. Uh, but I think that I made the right kind of choice. And I think... Uh, at least in my experience, the number of people who drop out of a successful academic career in order to make money is vanishingly small. The number of people who pace, take the pace of a very hard business career and drop out to do something which is a little bit less arduous is, in fact, very, very common. So I think, in effect, what happens is that people really understand what these trade-offs are. They are making them, and that the, the key point to understand is so long as there's an awareness and an internalization of what happiness can and cannot bring, what wealth can and cannot bring, what you do is you leave it to individual choices. And the great advantage of a market situation is that you could kind of rank jobs out there, and at one side there are high-pay, low-happiness jobs, and at the other side there are low-pay, high-happiness jobs, and then there's some jobs in the middle, and you tell people, you know your own utility functions, you decide what you want to do. So you have some people who are not particularly interested in a family and are willing to go to strange places on weekends. They may take the high-pay, low-satisfaction job because for them it's not such a great sacrifice. But if you have somebody with children at home and lots of civic activities, they will start to move into the opposite direction. We do know, for whatever it is worth, that on most of these happiness surveys, people in the helping professions tend to score very, very high. So ministers and social workers and so forth, teachers to some extent if they don't burn out, are often doing quite well on these kinds of studies. And that's exactly the sort of thing that you would expect. The, the world doesn't give you any freedom. Uh, what you have to do is to take a sum of wealth and a sum of utility and put them together and, and carve your own life for it. There's no one else who's going to be able to do it for you. And the last thing I think you want to do, in effect, is to say that we want to have government policies like very high marginal tax rates on income which will force people to lead lives more virtuous than they would otherwise do. Somebody wants to do all that stuff, make all that money, can't spend it anyhow, puts it into investment from which the rest of us benefit. My attitude is envy is a terrible emotion in this world. Don't want to have it. If somebody's highly successful, highly productive, more power to him. And, and I think that, that most people feel that way. The, uh, the, the envy literature, which many people report to, strikes me as being typical of a, a small misanthropic set of the population. Most well, people have a relative amount of good cheer about the successes of others, not, of course, to the person who beats them out for a job, but I think that sort of the envy that you see in businesses by people who earn less money about the people in the same business who've had more training and earned greater amounts of money, I've never detected it. I don't go into doctor's office and see nurses seething that doctors earn more than they do and that um, receptionists seething that the nurses earn more than they do. What you do see all the time is a very different phenomenon which is if you have two people in roughly same positions and one person is slacking and the other one has to take the work, then the resentments are really great because people regard that as a kind of theft. 
Um, each of us is putting the same amount into this business. He's getting out much more than I am, and that seems to them to be unfair. And indeed, unless you stop that as a manager, your good people will leave and your bad people will stay, at which point you have a legacy the likes of which you would rather not see. Well, I, I want to turn to Envy now, the, yeah. now that you've started, but before we leave the the um, wealth, leisure, wealth, meaningfulness trade-off, I, I do want to mention there, there is a oh, I don't know, 3,000-year-old literature in Western civilization that that uh, reminds us that the accumulation of stuff is not always the road to happiness. Yeah, so the I, religious I, literature has exactly that effect. Right, and so and that religious literature is both literally religious, coming from uh, God-based uh, efforts to improve human behavior, to what you might call secular uh, religions, if that's a meaningful term, it's an interesting question, but... Preachers is the way I think of it, people who want us to um, adjust our behavior, change our trade-offs, or encourage us to recognize that the bigger car, the, the bigger house, the fancier job title does not always lead to happiness. I think, I think most people know that. I think the behavioral literature's contribution uh, to the extent I think it challenges economics is that even though we may know that, it's hard to act that way so that the revealed – I think the, the the serious challenge of that behavioral literature to this conversation is that revealed preference uh, ignores regret, right? That, that down the road, say you had gone the other path, you'd gone to the, the high-end law firm, you'd work your 90 to 120 hours a week for 35 years, and um, at the end of it, uh, it's all uh, – it's all ashes, you know. It's there's the, the satisfaction might not have been there. Now, I think there are plenty of people who work those jobs who have tremendous satisfactions. So I think yeah. I think it's easy to romanticize and vilify in each direction incorrectly. But I think there's there's a genuine issue that people obviously do make mistakes sometimes. Um, in that yes, trade-off. they do. But look, the point about this, and the, which I would insist upon, is it goes both ways. Um, you think of the line, "I could have been a contender." The number of people I know who yep. would prepared to say. Gee, when I was younger, I took the safe job, didn't take the risk, wasn't prepared to put in the last hours. Now I'm sort of schlepping along one way or another. Yeah. If I had really made that supreme effort to define myself, I would have been a different man or a different woman. Yeah. Uh, you can regret the, the cautious, safe, low-risk, uh, low-return kinds of strategies as well. Um, life is going to be filled with regret. Um, I think what we want to do to people is to tell them, look, when you have these regrets in the future, there's nothing that anybody can do to unmake the past. And we're certainly not going to give you compensation for being unhappy today. So that what you have to do is to gain the self-knowledge as to what you really like and to think hard about these kinds of choices in the hopes that you will make um, the correct one. And what really happens about this is we have to know something about decision-making. The usual patterns of decisions is that most people make most small decisions so effortlessly that they're not aware of the fact that they're being made. Um, they know which newspapers to buy. They know what they want to read in the morning. They know what brands of foods they prefer to eat and so forth. The prices are relatively stable. The transactions are very frequent. But there are certain kinds of decisions which are truly enormous, which happen with very low probabilities. Getting married is one such decision. Deciding on the proper treatment when you have, God forbid, a serious illness like cancer is another one. And I think what we can say with complete confidence is that if it turns out that repetition and familiarity ease the pain of decision, then we find ourselves in the position where, where our resources are most strapped at the times that we need them most. And particularly in the medical area, it's even worse because as you're faced with the decision of your life, you're now 
dealing with your own diminished competence and your own internal resources and your mental instability, so you really have to learn to rely on others in order to get yourself through those kinds of rough times. Uh, but there's nothing about a system of economics, whether it be socialist or capitalist or anything else, which is going to insulate people from hard choices or remove uncertainties. In fact, one of the things we could say politically is exactly the opposite. It's the old Hayekian insight. If you decide to certain people, your farm is you're entitled to a stable income, we're going to guarantee it to you. It means that all the fluctuations in the economy are going to be borne by those people who have to provide the subsidies, and their uncertainty is going to be greatest by far. And so what you have to understand is that you can do something to minimize uncertainty, not through redistribution and through guarantees, but through the creation of stable legal rules and regimes so that people know where they stand. But if there are exogenous shocks from the world, whether they come from earthquakes or from individual misfortune, uh, you're going to have to deal with them. There's no way that we can remove uncertainty. And so, therefore, there's no way that we can remove regret. Uh, the better trained you are and the better your support systems, this turns out to be absolutely critical, the better you're due. I mean, one of the things we know um, from the social psych psychosocial literature is that for these high-risk, um, high-stakes high decisions, People who try to make them alone always make mistakes. And that's when you need a really strong family or religious support network of one kind or another. Because just the ability to bat it out is extremely important. And it's interesting that the, the literature on behavioralism always has everybody acting in voids. So if you look at all the experiments, it's not how people get together and figure out how to right, solve you're alone a problem. In a room. It's always, yeah. here's something in front of you, figure out what the answer is, and you get it wrong. There's no feedback, there's no learning or nothing. And the first piece of advice that you give to anybody, just about any time, is when you are in trouble, um, not only do you want to think a little longer, you want to get the view of somebody whom you trust who's a little bit removed from the situation. Find a mentor, find a friend, yeah, find yeah. a family member, find a clergy person. It's uh, That's very true. And that's a, not a bad piece of advice for for uh, for parents and uh, helping their kids make these decisions about where to go to college, what career to start. But one thing your comment reminds me of is that we have such a dynamic labor market in the United States, and it's decried often, but we have a pretty dynamic marriage market in the United States. Uh, people move among uh, jobs and marital partners, and as a result, um, the costs of error are lower in the United States than they are in a more stratified society. It's certainly on the job market side. Or you, or you make it once and for all. Right, and you're done, and you're you're a, you're a uh, you're a clerk in uh, in Scrooge's firm, and that's your lot in life, and there's nothing you can do about it except uh, accept it, which sometimes you can manage, and look for the bright side. But the beauty of a more dynamic uh, free market system is the opportunity to cut your loss. Yeah, realize what you do love, what you do care about, and the opportunity to pursue those is is much greater. Um, there's also, by the way, in this situation, a key advantage of the traditional American system of education, which at the higher levels tends to be more competitive because of all these private colleges, is the English system and the French system always route people into tracks at a very early age. Yeah, that's a good point. So in France, if you want to become a judge, you don't go to the same school as the one if you want to become a lawyer. And what you do is you create a certain kind of standardization inside all of these professions because there's no hybridization. People from the outside can't come in. 
One of the great joys about teaching in an American law school is that you not only get people who have all sorts of different undergraduate education, but you always get students who are in their mid to late 20s, sometimes even in their early 30s, and you get bankers, computer people, you get paralegals, you get this, you get that. So there's a complete different mix. And what happens is a common education, which falls upon people with different predispositions, skills, and backgrounds, yields a very much richer array of understanding than you would get under the conventional system, so that you get much stronger people at the top because they are more varied, they're more competitive, they're more synergistic in the way in which they operate than you do if everybody comes through with an exactly the same sort of standardized repertoire and understanding. So competition, in effect, creates variation, and variation creates excellence. And I think that those are things that tend to be missed by by these models. They are almost always solipsistic. Everybody's sort of out there doing things themselves, and the natural tendency on the part of people to cooperate, um, not with everybody, but with those whom they like. The word friend, of course, is, is, is an important word in this language. You would not know that there were friendships sometimes if you watched the way in which the behavioralists did their various experimentations. It's always lonely people. Occasionally you get a little bit of team production in there, but it's on a highly routinized basis. And yet that element of trust leads to gains from trade as people expand their own knowledge sets and their skill sets by combining very informally but very effectively with others. Well, let's tr- let's go back to Envy now. Uh, one of the themes in this literature is that, uh, and you pointed out uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a working paper, there's a, there's a tension between this earlier result, which seemed to suggest that in the happiness literature that wealth doesn't make you happy, and yet – Relative wealth seems to be very important in some of these uh, studies. Mm-hmm. They find uh, that you, your level of happiness doesn't depend on your absolute level, but rather you're, you're standing relative to others. And mm-hmm. talk about that literature. Well, I mean, it's a complicated literature because there's certainly some degree of truth about it within limits. That is, one way to look at this is to assume that you're in a group of people who all have about the same wealth. At this particular point, wealth is not going to be a strong differentiator amongst one person to another. But now within this group, it turns out one's the popular kid in the class and the other turns out to be the class nerd or the doormat. Since the wealth variation or the wealth component is relatively fixed, the only way in which people can rank and understand themselves is in fact through these informal social rankings. And there is no question that to some extent these things are competitive. Uh, If somebody has a high status, somebody else by necessity has to have a low status. And so there's going to be some kind of differentiation between them. Uh, The question, though, is exactly how people want to deal with the inevitable stratification that takes place when people are in in, in these kinds of social groupings. Uh, And what the happiness literature suggests and it's now it's the misery literature, is that the way you become happy is to make the other fellow miserable rather than to make yourself happier or better than it would otherwise be. And what happens is I just don't believe that this is an accurate account for the most part. So, I mean, yes, it may be that a woman is very disappointed that she's not getting married, and it turns out that one of her friends has just gotten engaged. I don't think she wants to wreck the engagement uh, by virtue of the fact that she's not engaged. She would rather be engaged herself. And, you know, the same thing happens, well, one of your friends makes the football team and you don't make it. I don't think you resent the fact that he made it if he got it fair and, you know, through fair competition and so forth. I think you just wish that you had been a little bit better so that you could have made this thing as well. But those so what are you both want th- to do under these circumstances is to let people be aware of these status relationships and then to create an incentive structure in which they try to improve themselves rather than trying to, to bring somebody else down. 
And, you know, if you look at the way in which most people behave, somebody has good news, they get a raise, they have a new child and so forth. One doesn't say, I wish the kid were dead, um, I'm sorry you got the raise. What they tend to say is congratulations. Um, in fact, one of the other bodies of literature out there points in exactly the opposite direction, uh, and this is actually a fairly optimistic literature. Uh, it turns out that there are people, when you give them a choice on how to spend their money, you can give them the following choices. We'll let you make an investment of 10, and from that investment of 10, you can recover 12 for yourself, or you could recover 20 for a group of four people of whom you're only one. So you're and get... the question is whether or not you're going to think that extra eight units of social gain is something that you're willing to do, even if it means that there's seven units of net loss for yourself under the numbers that I've just given you. And it turns out there are a surprising number of people when it comes to making their choices in these artificial settings are willing to kind of expand and to share the wealth simultaneously. And unlike the usual form of share the wealth, which is income, retax, income taxation and redistribution, which shrinks the pot, what you see is that people are willing to take less of an expanding pie. That's what these experiments start to indicate. Well, that strikes me as being a very nice kind of feature because what it indicates in part when you translate it into the social situation is that it reduces the serious problems associated with the creation of public goods. So to give you an example that comes from this literature, and it's certainly one that fits me to a T, is oftentimes you will see somebody littering in a public park. And if you do the actual economic calculation, this is what you would say to yourself. Well, the littering is going to cost everybody in the park a unit, say, of 10. But I'm only one out of 100 persons in this park, so my loss is only 0.1. Why would I want to stop this guy and risk some kind of retribution? Just leave it alone. And so everybody should be completely indifferent. And then you sit in the park, and there some people feel uncomfortable and turn the other way. But there are always one or two people who go up to the person and say, well, why did you do that littering? And say, so you should pick that up. You're messing it up for everybody else. And what they're doing, in effect, is having a private enforcement of a social norm for the benefit of a larger group at some discrete cost to themselves. And if you get enough of these people in enough of these settings, it means that norm enforcement on a desirable way becomes a much more feasible opportunity than the narrow egotistical versions of human nature would suggest. So when you juxtapose that literature against the envy literature, it seems to me that that literature, which talks about this sort of modest public spiritedness on the part of many, but by no means all individuals, is much more reliable. Now, is there a way to reconcile the literatures? And I think the answer is yes. Um, if you look at human beings, the most natural characteristic for every particular trait that you can mention is variability. Um, on a self-interest measure, there are going to be people who are very selfish, and there are other people who are by nature generous. I mean, it's built into their basic personality. Some people have empathy. This gets to the evolutionary issues in ways that other people do not. And what happens is if you only look at the guy at the bottom of the tail, you'll be seeing the Grinch who says, kill the other guy's cow. But if you look at most of the distribution, people will be clustered about the middle where they have modest appreciation of the welfare of others. And then there'll be some people at the top who are professional do-gooders who will not be able to rest until they've made the lives of their fellow citizens better than they would otherwise be. And in a market system, you can encourage those people, and you can certainly let them be. The last thing you want to do is to tax them um, in some form. So there are, I think, uh, a range of characteristic, and ordinary people will describe some of their friends as benevolent, funny, and cheerful, and others, people as they know, as distrustful, misanthropic, and hateful. Um, it's not that you have to have the same character description of all people, 
What you have to understand with respect to the happiness literature is that variability is, in fact, as important with respect to happiness and envy as it is with any other trait that you have. And then your job in a legal system is to snuff out the bad guys. That's the prohibition on force. And to encourage the good guys. So now put it back together with our four-word maxim from the beginning. If you have a maxim which says aggression, no, the guy with envy can't kill the neighbor's cow. If you say cooperation, yes, then the guy with envy can go out and cooperate with somebody else, and instead of having no cows, can leapfrog the first guy by finding the wherewithal to buy two. Um, And so, you know, the system works fairly well. So if you look at the basic literature, take into account the the variations in human nature. Uh, The maxim that we've talked about is really even stronger than you think, because what it does is it puts the hard pressure on the people with the asocial instincts, and it tends to give much more protection with people who have pro-social instincts. Well, let me put it in a different uh, policy context. Uh, Over the last 30 years uh, in the United States, I'd say the last 35, maybe 40 years, measured inequality has risen in the income distribution. Now, I think there are a lot of um, reasons for that that have nothing to do with economic results, we have a large increase in immigration in the last 20 years. We had a huge demographic change beginning in the 70s due to an increase in the divorce rate. It changed households. So we're doing a lot of – a lot of things are going on at the same time. Yep. But the economic part of it that's clearly the case is that returns to education have seemed to have risen, especially at the high end. Yep. And we have a more entrepreneurial, I think, environment in the United States today than we had in the, say, 50s or 60s, which I think is all to the good. Sort of but one. one of the results of that has been that a, a small group of people have earned very large rewards, mm-hmm. I think, by helping others. But they still have high rewards uh, relative mm-hmm. to the average. And we see this also in the superstar literature, the due to, I think, technology, the opportunity for the best athletes, the best entertainers, the best movie stars to reach larger and larger audiences, has inflated their salaries, rel- inflated is the wrong word, increased their salaries relative to the mean, et cetera. That's now, right. I view that very benignly, and I actually it inspires me, and I like it. Others say no. Others say that's this is a social catastrophe, this spreading of income, and it induces uh, this envy phenomenon we've been talking about is is real. Uh, it, it increases. A uh, previous guest on on Econ Talk, William Bernstein, talked about literature that suggests this is correlated with higher crime rates, lower health rates. I'm skeptical, but this is a major uh, viewpoint that this rising inequality in the United States is a major social problem. What's your perspective on it, uh, for, as a uh, from the happiness literature and a policy perspective? Okay, well, start, let's start off. Obviously, the first thing I worry about is how it is that this inequality starts to come about. And to me, it's actually a mixed bag. To the extent that it comes about through entrepreneurial activities at a very high level, it's all quite wonderful. You get somebody who earns a very high salary as an entertainer. What I ask myself is how much consumer surplus did that person generate to all the people who paid for the tickets to watch his or her show? And my guess is that that consumer surplus is absolutely dwarfs the income side. And much I of mean, it goes uncaptured, of course, by yeah, the by the performer. By, by the entertainer, but it doesn't go wasted as a social situation. Michael Jordan's salary at the peak of his basketball game must have been, you know, say $30 million a year. 
If you then try to calculate the amount of pleasure that people got by watching him, they play 80, 90, or 100 games a year, and, you know, it turns out you pay $30 million to this guy by having a penny per person per game, and you ask yourselves, well, would they pay more than that to do it? And the answer to that question is obviously yes. But there's another side about the United States, which you didn't mention, which I think makes this situation a little bit more troublesome. But it doesn't call for transfer taxation. It calls for deregulation. One of the other things that happened in this period is we've seen a systematic decline in the level of public education in the United States, which correlates with the breakup of the family and, in addition, with the creation of strong unions and strong kind of government oversight of what's going on. Um, We also see that the barriers at the bottom to entry are much more difficult because it's not just minimum wage laws. It's a whole variety of situations in the employment markets which indicate that very low able, low ability people find it harder and harder to get to that first step, and that makes it more and more difficult for them to rise. So that what's a part of the problem that you're having here is that we have created in the form of protection legislation for the less fortunate barriers to entry which impede their progress because they can't get on the train to begin with. So at the time you're talking about high achievement from the college set, you have situations in cities like Los Angeles and New York where you have a third or a quarter or a half of a class not being able to make it through you know, college, high school and get themselves an elementary degree. You get social promotions and all the rest of that. So that if you're trying to figure out what the source is at the bottom, a lot of it has to do with really bad social and political institutions of which unionization is one, minimum wage hours turns out to be another, sort of very bad operations of public education systems, the resistance to vouchers and to charter schools are are yet the others. So you're basically having a situation where the two-tier income you're seeing is in part from a two-tier educational system. You get these small suburban schools, they do great. You get the rich in the city going off to private schools, they do great. And then you get everybody else in huge numbers trapped in these large public school monopoly systems from which there's no escape and a level of incompetence with respect to overall operation, which even heroically able, you know, chancellors can't do anything. You know, Joe Kine's a pretty smart guy, but New York City's a very complicated place. Arnie Duncan's a smart guy in Chicago, but by God, you're trying to educate 500,000 people there with all sorts of impediments on the opposite side. So I think, in effect, that what we are seeing in this is a higher returns to education. And at the same time, we are seeing inferior education being given to those people who need it the most. I mean, my young son, my youngest child, Elliot, teaches at the Harlem Success Academy, and his class is virtually all minority students. But the expectations there are really very different from what they are in the public school system. Day one, they walk into class. He went to Brown. They are in a classroom of Brown University students, right? Because the expectation that they hammer home to these kids at age five is all of you are going to graduate from college. And not only that, we're going to get you there the right way. And what's that? Well, the first thing you've got to learn how to do is to stand online, right? Hmm. And not to create a fuss. And then you have to learn your letters. And then you have to learn your multiplication table. So a lot of it is back to basics. And, you know, he showed me in this school, I'm going to give it a shameless plug because I was so impressed. Um, He showed me, you know, the kindergarten kids who could barely write the letters backwards, all the scrolls. And then he showed me the bulletin boards of the third year, the third graders, and it was remarkable progress. Now, these kids are chosen at random from very poor communities. There's a huge demand to get more people into them and so forth. And those kids will do all right because the education is much better. But if you trap them in inferior public institutions um, from which there's no escape, they will do a lot worse. 
So I do agree with the fact that there's an alarming amount of inequality, but I think the resentment will come from people who realize that in their critical phases, they were paying hard, good tax dollars to get a vastly inferior education. And that what you have to do is not worry about inequality as such, but worry about the social institutions that tend to drag down the least fortunate members of society by placing all sorts of impediments upon them. Um, that is, to me, I, I think, a real social scandal. Um, I, the, the literature on this point is absolutely unmistakable, which is if you could get to a kid at age four or five, every dollar you put in there is going to have more impact on a positive way if you get it spent correctly than it would if you even waited till seven, eight, or nine. Um, you've got to start the trajectory upwards. If it starts upward, you could keep it going. But the moment you slip at the early age and the formative capacities of these kids are going to be compromised for a week, by a weak education, it costs you twice as much to catch up a year later. Uh, to put it the way Jim Heckman does, interest, which is what you save from deferring good education, is but a rounding error relative to the additional cost of trying to make that education go. So, I mean, on the inequality stuff, I think there's a lot to be said. But unfortunately, it's the champions of many of our modern social programs who are the source of the kinds of indefensible inequalities which should lead to resentment because they are born not of differences in natural ability but differences in circumstances created by social institutions, many of which could be improved. I have nothing to add to that other than um, quiet applause here at, oh, the, okay. uh, at the host you. chair. Let's um, – you wanted, you wanted to talk a little bit before I run about the evolution. Yeah, that's what I was going to turn to next. Talk about what uh, you think evolution has to tell us about our feelings of uh, envy and um, the role of wealth in our lives. Um, what happens is I've, for the last 30 or so years, have always been somewhat enchanted by the general field of sociobiology, as it used to be called, or evolutionary psychology, which it's called today. The field, of course, has always been attacked from the outside as being a form of rampant sexism or racism or worse, but in fact, that's not what his major thrust is. Um, the field starts from the following very simple kind of observation. If individual self-interest in the way in which I've described it thus far were the only motivating force in life, we would never be able to have children and we would never be able to go through the necessary evolutionary cycle, which says that you've got to find a way for every species or for every individual in every species to start with yourself and then to get the next generation up to the same point in the cycle so it could repeat again and well, again. We could have children. We just wouldn't take care of them. Yeah, well, you would, yeah, <laughs> you know, sex is fun, so if kids born, just let it rot. Let it right? ride, yeah. um, you know, that's not going to go. So what you have to do is to figure out why the behaviors that we see, particularly in family context, bear no relationship to the model of individual self-interest. And the key insight from that comes from a man named um, W.D. Hamilton. And what he was able to show, and to show quite persuasively, was that individuals in some sense are holders for their genes. And that what, there is a principle known as inclusive fitness, so that when people act, they act not only to maximize their own welfare, but the welfare of those who are near and dear to them. So it's a kind of form of mini-socialism within genetic families. And that the ratios are determined by the percentage of common genes. And this means that if a parent has half his genes in a child, he's willing to spend $1 if he'll give $2 of benefit to the kid because you take the two to the kid, divide it in half, and that's exactly the same as the one to himself. You go at an early age where very small inputs by parents will generate huge benefits for children, right? 
And you can start to see why it is that you get this obsessive and fearful and powerful protective instincts that parents and all species have with respect to their offspring. And this is true of human beings, and it's true of rhinoceros and a bunch of other species as well. Not all species, because some of them are incapable of taking care, like fish, given the environment that you start to have. Well, this means, in effect, that individuals are no longer interested exclusively within themselves. Now, one of the great insights of Darwin early on, when he started this, is he said that emotions are not immune from evolutionary pressures. That is, what happens is, if there are certain kinds of objective behaviors that will help you measured by your inclusive fitness, then you will develop emotional sentiments in order to engage in those behaviors because otherwise the psychological dissonance between what you do and what you would like to do would be too great. So what this does is it gives a kind of a perfectly sensible naturalist explanation for what is called in the legal literature natural love and affection um, that parents have for their children. If you're going to have to take care of these kids, and you've got all this genetic investment in it, the one way in which you'll start to take care of them is if you internalize their welfare into your psyche. And one of the things that everybody who's a new parent always says is they are stunned at the power of the biological impulses that happen first during pregnancy and then perfectly obviously right after birth. It's as though Mother Nature snuck up on them and took yep. away all of their elegant academic sophistication. Can't, and it and can't be explained it. to someone who... It's very, you cannot explain that emotional change, even though you, you were the person before the child was born who, who didn't have children. Once it happens to you, you're in a slightly different state. Yeah, you can't, it's, just, it's amazing. Mother Nature does not involve, does not rely on pure cognition to handle its most important functions. Brains with high intelligence are too unreliable. You've got to get an emotion that's digging into that thing 24-7. And so people kind of understand that. Well, once that goes in, ask the following simple question with all this framework. Is happiness a motion which will promote survival of the species? And the answer is within limits, yes, but clear limitations, no. If what evolution requires a parent to do is to sacrifice under circumstances to take care of its offspring, then simply walking away in times of trouble when the child is sick, for example, is a losing strategy. So what you have to do is to develop a set of emotions of deep internal angst and worry and concern and compassion with respect to your offspring in order for you to be able to go through all of the problems. Well, if you are now in one of these situations and you have a very serious family issue, you're not going to describe yourself as happy because, frankly, you're not going to be happy. Um, but on the other hand, if you ask somebody, would you change their kind of behavior, they're going to also answer no. What's going on here is that the happiness literature falsely assumes a kind of hedonism, which is incapable of evolutionary um, perpetuation of the species. And so that the emotions that people develop are much more variegated and much more complicated. So one of the reasons they develop a sense of dread is they realize that if they don't take care of their children, um, something horrible will happen to them. And one of the reasons why they develop a sense of grieving is if they know they're going to feel miserable after something happens, they'll take further steps to avoid it. But on the other hand, you can't be so miserable afterwards that you can't take care of your other children, so it's this constant tightrope, trying to figure out how you first satisfy one concern to prevent losses, and then, God forbid, if they should occur, to figure out how to adjust to them thereafter. Well, the happiness literature that has always struck me never looks at any of this stuff. Um, and so, therefore, when it reports that people are not as happy with children as they, you might expect, 
that's only because their literature would expect it. This is exactly what I would suspect. And, and in fact, that's what the empirical studies seem to suggest, is that when you're talking about um, sort of intrafamilial situations, um, momentary happiness is not all that high, but long-term life satisfaction is much deeper. And so yeah, people right. will say, I'm glad I raised my children. It was worth it. And what they mean is it was worth the cost. Um, and so they're fully understanding about that. And so if you get the right form of evolutionary theory in there, all of a sudden what you do is you have a much, shall we say, more acute sense of what the appropriate set of emotional targets and keys are for various individuals. It's also consistent with the religious literature, uh, at least the li religious literature that is not ascetic and um, you know um, pain-based um, mm -hmm. or have a, doesn't have a component of masochism and suffering as a way toward toward the divine. Uh, obviously, uh, both the evolutionary literature and the spiritual viewpoint point out that hedonism is not the road to happiness. It's the road to momentary happiness. And it, it really is an economic viewpoint as well. I'd never thought about it. Well, yes, I mean, Father Sirico always makes that point. He says, essentially, when you start talking about the attacks on hedonism in this situation, you're asking people to discount the future to the present and to give it an accoordinate weight so that the economic theory that you have to trade off present against future satisfaction is, in fact, the guide for leaving a more coherent and long-distance life. And, and just, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's important to add that, that Adam Smith recognized that it, it always makes me sad, and I always uh, try to rectify it when I can, that people think Adam Smith was a proponent of grasping uh, self-interest, that that's the essence of economics, and the economic system is to get whatever you can and get ahead and to make as much money as possible. And it certainly was not his view. It certainly wasn't his view because he wrote the theory of moral exactly. sentiment. And now, in effect, that's the other half of, of, of economics. The word sentiment is one of these very funny words because it could mean on the one hand of positive sense, I share your sentiments, which sort of mean your inculcated deep beliefs, or on the other hand, it could be treated as a kind of a verb of sentimental, meaning you're not being rational or tough-minded. And what he meant by a theory of moral sentiments in many cases was the effort to figure out how it is that people reacted towards the misfortunes of others. And it was a fairly astute judgment as follows. Well, you don't treat them as acutely as you do your own. But on the other hand, you're not completely indifferent to them either. Because what the whole theory of evolution does is the moment it makes you aware of the fact that your psyche is only going to be comfortable if you take into account the welfare of individuals other than yourself, it's impossible to chain that so that you only care about your children and you don't care about your children's friends, right? Because um, they're going to be sitting there, and if one of them happens to go over the cliff, it may be that you don't have any genetic connections, but you're going to feel the same kind of instinctive fright as if it were your own child, and in most cases, if you can do it, you'll do something to prevent it. Uh, so that what happens is uh, the whole theory of inclusive fitness tends to create a halo effect, weaker than family, obviously, but stronger than nothing, uh, in which it turns out there's a degree of empathy and through it a degree of sociability and cooperation that otherwise takes place. And this then turns out to give you the explanation as to why it is all social organizations from every source, kind, and description have not founded on prisoners' dilemma games, which you might have otherwise have thought to be the case. And the reason they don't founder is because that level of cooperation is, in fact, one um, that we all sort of put a, a kind of respect for. So it's a very complicated world out there. I mean, nobody wants to deny that. Um, but it's one which you can only understand 
by realizing that individual utilities, given who we are by human nature, are to some extent inherently interdependent as opposed to being sort of resolutely independent. And what, what does this start to say? If you go back to our maxims, which is you want to be cooperative first but not to be aggressive, if you have these kinds of sentiments, it increases the probability of cooperative relative to aggressive behavior. Is it going to be perfect? No. Because remember, we also have to combine this with the same point we made before about temperament and variability in emotions and sentiments. And what we can say on that score quite simply is this. There will be some people who will be more cooperative and others who will be less. All you can say about the nature of human sentiments by virtue of this kind of shift is on balance that we will have a little easier time in developing pro-social as opposed to anti-social behavior, but that we still have to worry about the outliers. Now, that's a fight, because you get most people who are intuitively cooperative at some modest level and a few who are not. It's a much easier world to organize socially than the Hobbesian world, where, in effect, what's going on is quite the opposite, where everybody's relentlessly individualistic and cooperation only comes from the secure promise of a return gain that nobody can supply you with because there's no state to enforce contracts. The world doesn't work that way. Most people, when they meet somebody else, they'll give them a chance. The first interaction is usually not a fatal form of a prisoner's dilemma. Now, it's an interesting question as to whether that does vary across cultures and countries, of course. Uh, but your point about outliers is quite interesting. Just comment on the following. The outlier at one end is the thug who breaks into 100 homes and creates terror and fear and, and uh, is a horrible thing. The outlier at the other end is Thomas Edison. Uh, yeah. It's Sergey Brin who creates Google. It's the person who just transforms thousands of lives through just a little bit of passion – Partly for money, but partly to change the world, partly for love of the task. All kinds of things are going on at the same time. And the real risk of the thug is when the thug has the power of the state to, to murder millions of people. The, the well, thug, yep. I mean, look. Thuggery is limited to, to terrorizing a few houses uh, at a time as long as it's not centralized power. But that outlier on the other end can do all kinds of good. Well, Yes, I mean, look, the basic theory of, of social organization is can you get a monopoly of power called the state which will stop private thugs from killing off gifted individuals without becoming a bigger thug himself? And, you know, we've had noticeable failures in that domain. You know, start with Nazi Germany, think of Soviet Russia for many, many years, go through all of the kleptocracies that you had with people like Paul Pot and Idi Amin and so forth. The Middle Ages weren't so good either. Uh, no, they had some good periods and bad periods. Um, this is an enterprise from which you can fail. And so, therefore, when you start talking about governments, it, it's sort of like the stock market. You don't want to worry only about the short-term modest little risks. You want to worry about the low probability of a catastrophic event, which is somebody like that taking over. And the genius of our Constitution, with its multiple structures, has always been to fragment power to the point where it becomes harder for anyone to perform heroic functions in government, but that's fine by me because they never do it right anyhow. But it also makes it harder for somebody to take over with a tyrannical aspect, and that's something we have to worry about. And so, well, you know, you've got to keep these social institutions strong where people are constantly aware of the dangers. And I'll just end on this note because there's some noise in the background now, which is that the, one of the great dangers of populism, of course, 
is that what it is designed to do is to stoke the envy, which people feel in lesser degree. And at that point, what you do is you start to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. You say, you know, I don't want somebody to earn a billion dollars. And the effect is nobody will own a billion dollars, but there'll be nobody who will create the next Google coming out there. And in fact, one of the things that's so worrisome about our current policies with respect to venture capital corporations, tax gain, and so forth, is that there are very few new companies that come out and go public and make a fortune. And these are the ones which have sustained huge portions of our social well-being. So I do think that um, as I look at, at the modern political situation, I fear that the efforts to stoke the fire on envy, to take advantage of the economic uncertainty that's created by regulation, will lead to a kind of a climate in which there'll be a real form of long-term social stagnation. We had a cheerful note there about the Constitution restraining thuggery, but uh, yeah, but we have to worry about the fact that these these, these safeguards are weaker today than they've been because of judicial interpretation. And the other point, which is of equal importance to remember under these circumstances, the gains from private rent-seeking activity, given the way society is organized today, are perhaps larger than they've ever been before. Yeah, it's true. Well, um... I'll let you go to class, Richard. My, okay, my, my guest today has been Richard Epstein of the University of Chicago and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Thanks for being part of EconTalk. Yeah, Russ, it's always a pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.